Welcome to today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette for Saturday, February 24th, 2024. I'm your reader, Erica Dubenbars. Here is our first story. CR's Greenway plan may include canoe safari. City unveils concepts, seeks feedback before plan goes to city council. Typically, the Cedar Rapids five-season ski team shows draw a couple of hundred to watch its ski shows during the summer. With the city's plan to revitalize the Greenway along the west side of the Cedar River, the team's co-director sees the opportunity to attract even larger crowds. David Lammers is on the river often, usually four days a week, and said he loves the city's three concept plans for Greenway parks in Time Check, Kingston Village, and Czech Village. I think there's a lot of this that I'll be using, Lammers said. Cedar Rapids' latest attempt to reimagine the more than 100-acre Greenway along the river aims to transform how city residents and visitors interact with the river. The plan updates the original 2014 plan and is to come to the Cedar Rapids City Council this spring once the city gathers more public feedback on the concept plans. The concepts were shown at an open house Thursday at Nubo City Market, and a feedback survey is available until March 6th at cityofcr.com forward slash Greenway Park Survey. After the 2008 flood, the primary concern of citizens with the city's flood control plan was being walled off from the river, Community Development Director Jennifer Pratt said. It has always been part of flood control to make sure that we have access and views to that river, Pratt said. The Greenway is an area where we can really emphasize that and embrace the river and activate those spaces. The city contracted with New York-based Michael Van Valkenburg Associates, which designed the Maggie Daly Park in Chicago, to update the Greenway plan at a cost of $262,800. What's in the plan? In time check on the river's west bank, the concept is to reimagine the Greenway in the city's most flood-devastated neighborhood. The plan shows a promenade stretching roughly from Q Avenue northwest to O Avenue northwest, with stone seat steps and a rocky point. Behind that, near the West Side Rising Memorial, would be a destination skate park and water play elements. To the south, there would be a levee lawn overlook and a picnic grove facing a canoe safari area. The safari would be a waterway, accessible to canoes, winding around small islands in the river. Up 5th Street Northwest, there would be multi-use sports courts, open space, and a sledding hill. Beyond that, a riverfront park would add a valley lawn, a dog run, and parking near F Avenue Northwest. The riverfront walk in front of Big Grove and Pickle Palace on 1st Street Southwest also would be refreshed, with the plan eventually featuring a whitewater rafting course. A feasibility study released in 2021 proposed a $14.6 million project to modify the 5-in-1 dam to offer whitewater and flatwater features in separate channels, with amenities such as zip lining and an island for spectators. Finally, in Czech Village, the plan includes construction of a new Czech Village roundhouse. The plan builds upon the loop created by the Alliant Energy Lightline Bridge that is to connect the two historic neighborhoods, Czech Village and Nubo. It includes a convertible street called a Woonerf that could be shared with or shut off to vehicular traffic to accommodate pedestrians and festivals. Hashim Taylor, director of the city's Parks and Recreation Department, said the concepts were based on public input from an in-person event and an online survey. They are subject to change based on additional feedback. This is what community involvement is about, really taking what the community says and putting it into action and hearing this is in line with their thoughts throughout the process, Taylor said. How will it be funded? 
It's unknown how much it will cost to implement the plan, but Pratt said part of the plan will include a timeline to phase in the various elements. The reason why investing in that plan right now is also as resources become available. Grant resources, state, federal, having the plan, having the renderings, makes us much more competitive to attract those dollars, Pratt said. Some initial dollars were secured for the Roundhouse and other Czech Village amenities when the state awarded $3 million in Destination Iowa funds toward the project. Those funds were made available through the Federal American Rescue Plan Act. When the council made enhancing the Greenway its top priority in 2022, council members were interested in rallying the private sector around efforts to revitalize the area along the river. I would imagine and anticipate we're going to need all partners, public and private, to get that greenway done, Mayor Tiffany O'Donnell recently said. Public thoughts. While Lammers, with the five-season ski team, likes most of the greenway concepts, he is suggesting moving the water ski team shows from the Ellis Harbor area closer to downtown, possibly where the canoe safari area is currently proposed. He said people have to cross busy Ellis Boulevard Northwest to access the shows, and parking can be limited. Right now, we're kind of off the beaten path, Lammers said. It's on a main road, but it's farther from town, so a lot of people in the area don't know we exist, so they don't come to a show even though we're currently Division II national champions, so we're one of the more entertaining teams out there. Jane Kilgallen, who lives in the Oak Hill-Jackson neighborhood but grew up in Time Check, said her two grandsons live in the Chicago area and are typically bored when they come to visit. She thought the plans for a new skate park, water-based elements, and other features would offer more things for young people such as her grandchildren to do and attract more families to Cedar Rapids. With areas such as Nubo well-recovered after the flood, she said, it's time for recovery to extend to the hard-hit northwest side with the Greenway transformation. She said she'd even support a property tax increase to make the improvements, if the city opted to do so. We have plenty of boutiques and plenty of bars and restaurants, Kilgallen said. It's time to think of the young people, the children. Those are our future of Cedar Rapids. Our future Cedar Rapidians are three and five years old. Hopefully they'll stay and they'll have a family and continue to stay if we can offer them great parks and tourist attractions. Ken Barker of Cedar Rapids said he'd love to see more Pike Bart bike park facilities incorporated in the Greenway for bigger wheels, such as BMX bikes. That way, people wouldn't have to drive as far as a county park because not everyone has the resources to drive to a sail system, trail system. He said he appreciated that the plan promotes river access and is, quote, leveraging it as an asset instead of something to be afraid of, unquote. Instead of just an industrial thoroughfare, he said, it's something to make people's lives happier and healthier. End of story. Prosecutor. Agencies cooperated for arrests in fatal assault. Third man is charged in Marion Woman's death. Cedar Rapids. The investigation leading to the arrests of three men in the kidnapping and fatal assault of 20-year-old Melody Hoffman of Marion this week was one of the, quote, swiftest, unquote, that Lynn County attorney Nick Maybanks has been involved with during his tenure. This was an all-hands-on-deck, full-force, deliberative effort to find out what happened to Melody Hoffman, Maybanks told the Gazette on Friday, after a third man was charged with conspiracy in her slaying. Investigators and officers from the Marion Police, Lynn and Iowa County Sheriff's Offices, and the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, quote, worked day and night digging up leads, confirming them, and then consulting with Maybanks on the appropriate charges, he said. 
McKinley Louisma, 23, of Hiawatha, and Dakota Lyle Van Patten, 18, of Cedar Rapids, were both charged Thursday with first-degree murder, first-degree kidnapping, and conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. At the time of this deadly attack, Louisma and Van Patten were both on bail for assault charged from last month. They are accused of kidnapping and killing Hoffman, who died by strangulation, according to the Iowa State Medical Examiner's preliminary report. She also had numerous stab and slash wounds to her body and was bound with duct tape during the February 17th attack. Logan William Michael Kimpton, 18, who has the same address in Hiawatha as Louisma, was charged Friday with conspiracy to commit a forcible felony. He admitted to investigators that he had been at Walmart with Louisma and Van Patten on February 17th when they bought two machetes and gloves. When an investigator told Kimpton during an interview that he, quote, chickened out, unquote, of participating in the killing, Kimpton said, damn right I did, according to a criminal complaint. Kimpton also told three other people one or two nights before the killing that he and two others planned to kill someone, the complaint states. These other people didn't know the victim's identity. Kimpton, during Friday's hearing, also was charged in a separate case with willful injury causing bodily injury and conspiracy to commit a non-forcible felony. He is accused of conspiring with two other men and a woman to assault, to assault Dakota Holt on January 14th. Sixth Judicial Associate District Judge Russell Keast set a $10,000 cash-only bail on the conspiracy charge in the Hoffman case and $10,000 cash or surety on the charges in the separate case. Details of Investigation Maybank said Hoffman's mother, Megan Hoffman, reported her daughter missing last Sunday morning. Melody lived with her family in Marion, and her mother hadn't seen her since Saturday night when Melody said she was going out with friends. Megan Hoffman didn't know if her daughter was with Louisma that night, but Maybanks confirmed Louisma had an on-again, off-again relationship with Melody. Louisma later told police he also had another girlfriend. The Iowa County Sheriff's Office got involved on Sunday, February 18th, when authorities found Hoffman's body near the Lily Pond at 220th Trail and 38th Avenue in Amana. Maybank said Marion Police and Iowa County typically request help from the Iowa Division of Criminal Investigation, so those three agencies started talking to witnesses. They tracked activity on Hoffman's iPhone, which was synced to her Apple Watch, and determined she was picked up by Louisma and Van Patten in Louisma's vehicle around 11 p.m. February 17th. He said investigators learned the three ended up in Lynn County's Morgan Creek Park, just west of Cedar Rapids, because Hoffman's Apple Watch recorded her heartbeat, which intensified and then stopped, either when she was killed or the watch was deactivated. She was either killed at Morgan Creek Park or Lily Lake, but both potentials... But both counties could potentially have jurisdiction because key events took place in both counties, Maybank said. But key elements, if not all the elements, of kidnapping and murder occurred in Lynn County before Louisma and Van Patten traveled to Iowa County and left the body, he added. The Lynn County Sheriff's Office then joined the investigation, and having information that Louisma was involved in the crime, the office obtained a search warrant for his car, which was found in Hiawatha, Maybank said. Deputies found a bag in the car's trunk containing Hoffman's phone case, a white Apple watch band with blood on it, a towing rope, gloves, and clothing Hoffman was wearing Saturday night, Maybank said. Maybank said Louisma came to the Marion Police Department after finding out his car had been towed there, and investigators interviewed him. 
Luisma told a DCI special agent that he and Van Patten bound Hoffman's wrists with duct tape while at Morgan Creek Park and placed her in the car trunk, according to the complaint. They then drove to several different places in Lynn County before they went to Lily Lake, where they ripped off her clothes and left her. Luisma also said Hoffman was physically beaten while she was with him and Van Patten, and that she was, quote, begging to be let go, unquote. He didn't admit to taking part in the beating himself, Maybank said. Luisma said he had been in an intimate relationship with Hoffman and still was seeing her when this fatal assault happened, but also was involved with another woman. He told the agent that if they asked Van Patten what had happened, he would probably blame Luisma, Maybanks noted. Investigators also confirmed through video surveillance that Luisma, Van Patten, and Kimpton were together at the Walmart buying the two machetes and gloves before they picked up Hoffman that night, Maybanks said. Van Patten, during his interview with police, admitted he was with Luisma at Walmart before the killing, but didn't admit to being with Luisma during the slaying. However, video surveillance from a Quickstar store in Cedar Rapids showed both Luisma and Van Patten buying cigars after the body was left at Lily Lake, according to the complaint. A witness told police that Van Patten, while in possession of a machete, admitted he had killed someone, and when asked who he killed, replied, Melody. Van Patten was arrested Wednesday. Kimpton was arrested Thursday when he failed to appear on the willful injury charge in the separate case. Maybanks was asked if a motive for the slaying has been determined, but he said he didn't have to prove a motive as an element of the crimes. I think it's safe to say that there is no good reason, he said. There is never a good reason for murder. End of story. Lawmakers divided over CO2 pipeline. Activists continue capital trips to oppose eminent domain. As opponents of carbon dioxide capture pipelines continue to lobby lawmakers for restrictions on eminent domain, the prospect of legislative action on the projects this year is unclear. Proposed pipelines to capture CO2 emitted at ethanol plants for underground storage have sparked controversy as environmentalists and landowners opposed to the use of eminent domain have lobbied to block their construction. The projects are backed by Iowa's ethanol and agricultural industries as a vital tool for boosting profits and breaking into new markets. Earlier this month, Iowa House lawmakers advanced House File 2522 out of committee. The bill would allow landowners affected by an eminent domain proceeding to petition a court to determine their rights and the constitutionality of the eminent domain request. The court would be able to determine, before the Iowa Utilities Board makes a final decision, whether the use of eminent domain to involuntarily take land is warranted by the proposed project. That decision could be appealed to higher courts. Representative Steve Holt of Denison, chair of the House Judiciary Committee, said it would make the process more fair for all parties. We also don't think that would be a bad thing for the energy companies as well, who might spend millions and millions of dollars only to find out at the end of the process that it wasn't, un- wasn't constitutional, Holt said. The bill originally would have allowed one-fifth of either chamber of the Iowa legislature to pause eminent domain proceedings, but that piece of the bill was removed in committee. What are the pipelines proposed in Iowa? Two pipelines are proposed in Iowa to capture CO2 produced at ethanol plants and store it in underground reservoirs. Summit Carbon Solutions has proposed a five-state pipeline that would cross 721 miles in Iowa. The company has asked for eminent domain authority along the route of the project. The project is awaiting approval from the Iowa Utilities Board. 
Another company, Wolf Carbon Solutions, proposes building a smaller pipeline covering five eastern Iowa counties, including Lynn County. The company has said it does not intend to use eminent domain for its construction. Summit has not taken a position on the House bill to allow court decisions over eminent domain, but Wolf Carbon Solutions has registered as opposed to it. Opponents say eminent domain should not be used for projects that benefit a private company, and some environmental groups argue that they are not an adequate solution for greenhouse gas emissions. Summit has said the project will drive economic growth in Iowa and support one of its key industries. The project would include $1.6 billion in capital spending and support 258 jobs in the state by 2027, according to Summit. Are eminent domain restrictions likely? Though HF 2522 passed in the House Judiciary Committee, it has not been taken up for a floor vote, and there is no companion bill in the Iowa Senate. The House has passed bills the last two sessions limiting the scope of eminent domain for carbon capture pipeline projects, but they have not received hearings in the Senate. The issue has split both the Republican and Democratic caucuses, as competing interests from agriculture, labor, landowners, and environmentalists have led to a wide range of positions on the issue. House Minority Leader Jennifer Confirst said the responsibility is with the Senate to join the conversation on the issue and take up the bill the House passed last year with the majorities of both parties. That bill would require a pipeline company to receive 90% of its route through voluntary easements before being granted eminent domain authority to force easements. Senate Republicans have chosen not to bring this up or address it in any way, Confirst said. So it doesn't matter how many bills we pass out if the Senate Republicans and the governor aren't engaged in the conversation. It's just more politics. Senate Majority Leader Jack Whitver, Republican from Grimes, said during a February appearance on Iowa PBS's Iowa Press that he did not support the provisions that were eventually removed from the House bill, saying they would give power to a, quote, super minority, unquote, of lawmakers. He said his caucus has a wide range of positions on the issue. And so it's really a split caucus, which is why you haven't seen action to this point, he said. Activists want to regulate water usage, ease lawsuits. Opponents have been making weekly trips to the Capitol to urge lawmakers to enact stricter eminent domain restrictions. Activists say they want a bill that would make it easier for entities and counties to ask for a pause in construction if a pipeline project gets approved by the Iowa Utilities Board, and stronger regulations on water usage for the projects. Julie Glade, who owns land in Wright County along Summit Carbon Solutions Route and has not signed an easement with the company, said she wants to see more action from lawmakers. I think what we need is some regulations, something to protect us from the eminent domain piece. The IUB is three people that can determine that eminent domain, Glade said, and we really need our senators and representatives to step up to try and protect us from three appointed people making that eminent domain decision. End of story. Kirkwood President Fisher making $350,000. Contract for new community college president made public. Kirkwood Community College will pay its new president, Christy Fisher, officially inaugurated this week, an annual salary of $350,000 for the budget year that ends June 30th, according to her three-year contract. Thereafter, per the agreement provided to the Gazette in response to a public records request, the Kirkwood Board of Trustees can adjust Fisher's salary, quote, from time to time, unquote. Having started her tenure as Kirkwood's sixth president October 30th, her initial employment agreement runs through June 30th, 2026, unless, quote, extended in writing by the parties, unquote. 
She's also receiving benefits, an annual annuity at 12% of her base pay, a vehicle allowance, and expense reimbursements for business costs. Her $350,000 salary is a slight bump up from what her predecessor, Lori Sundberg, was making in 2022 when she announced plans to retire. Rob Denson, president of Des Moines Area Community College, which reported nearly double Kirkwood's 12,662 enrollment in fall 2023, made a base salary of $355,780 in 2022, according to public records. For comparison, across the public higher education way in Iowa, University of Iowa President Barbara Wilson is making $700,000 a year. Iowa State University President Wendy Winterstein is making $650,000 a year. And University of Northern Iowa President Mark Nook is making $372,110 a year. All three of those public university presidents also have deferred compensation agreements, paying them bonuses at designated points. Kirkwood officials told the Gazette this week that Fisher doesn't have any deferred compensation agreements or other contract attachments or amendments. Community College Bill Before lawmakers reconvened for the current legislative session earlier this year, Iowa House Speaker Pat Grassley said he and his colleagues aimed to undertake a broad review of, quote, how we deliver higher education, unquote, in Iowa. That promise is manifested in a bill aimed at modifying the responsibilities and roles of the Board of Regents and its public universities, along with community colleges and private institutions. While the legislation, which passed out of committee this month and has been placed on the debate calendar, changes how regents choose university presidents, it doesn't address presidential selection across the community colleges. It does, however, offer several community college-related amendments, like requiring community colleges to authorize their presidents to initiate a post-tenure review of any employee of the community college at any time. It also would mandate the colleges accept the classic learning test, developed by classic learning initiatives as a means of determining whether to admit a student to the community college. Iowa's community colleges have an open-door admissions policy, guaranteeing admission regardless of previous educational attainment. Kirkwood, like the others, reports admitting 100% of its applicants. Even those without a high school diploma or equivalent can find help getting it at Kirkwood. The classic learning tests, an online standardized test developed in 2015, was designed as an alternative to the SAT and ACT in assessing reader, reading, grammar, writing, and math. Florida in 2023 passed a law allowing students to use CLT scores to apply to Florida State Universities, among other things. The Iowa bill also would require Iowa community colleges to revise strategic plans to include descriptions of how they'll prioritize degree programs, leading to employment in high-demand fields. It would mandate the colleges adopt policies barring any faculty, senate, or leadership group from having, quote, any governance authority over the community college, unquote. During Fisher's inauguration earlier this week, Julia Robb, president of the Kirkwood Faculty Association, spoke about the importance of collaboration and sharing responsibility. We pride ourselves on being an institution where we embrace our differences and celebrate the ways we can come together, she said. We believe that our diversity of talent, perspectives, and backgrounds makes us stronger. While change can be intimidating and overwhelming, it is where we thrive here at Kirkwood. I am confident that we can continue this rich culture of working together as an institution and as a family to make great things happen. End of story. And now we'll go to the opinion section. 
Here's an editorial from the Gazette itself. Allow the auditor to audit. Republicans who control the Iowa Senate pushed to pass this bill this week a bill that would allow government agencies to bypass the state auditor and have their annual audits conducted by private accounting firms. This year's legislative salvo aimed at the auditor's office comes on the heels of a bill approved last year, making it tougher for the auditor to access information from state agencies. It requires a three-member panel to judge the request, with one representative from the agency at issue, the auditor and a representative appointed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. It just so happens that state auditor Rob Sand is the only Democrat holding statewide office in Iowa. And yet Republicans, with a straight face, insist these moves are not political. Only in politics could hiring a nonpartisan, independent, licensed, certified public accountant be labeled as political, said Senator Mike Busolo, Republican from Ankeny, who also spearheaded last year's bill. Politely, we call baloney. This legislation and the 2023 bill clearly are aimed at reducing the Democratic auditor's oversight of an executive branch controlled by a Republican governor. Sand, while doing the job he was elected to do, has at times been a political fly in the ointment aggravating Republicans. Curtailing his ability to obtain information and allowing state agencies to run an end around by shutting Sand out of audits ignores that fact that Sand won re-election in 2022 fair and square. Iowans who voted for him likely wanted him to be a government watchdog, not an official sidelined by political revenge. Illinois, hardly a state known for clean government, has an auditing policy similar to the Iowa GOP bill. And how much more will it cost taxpayers to hire private firms? Throwing up barriers to hamper sand is a political exercise through and through. We know this because we watched it happen to former Iowa Attorney General Tom Miller. Republicans passed legislation requiring Miller to seek the governor's permission before joining out-of-state legal actions, in particular, lawsuits against the Trump administration. Miller agreed to seek the governor's permission in exchange for the bill being vetoed. But lawmakers have now expanded and enhanced the authority of Republican Attorney General Brenna Byrd. Byrd has joined numerous legal actions against the Biden administration, and no lawmaker has said a word about the attorney general wasting her time on political litigation. So what's happening here is clear. If Republicans can't control a state office, they'll simply seek to hobble its performance with misguided legislative edicts. Lawmakers should scrap this bill and let the auditor audit. That's why voters sent him to Des Moines. End of opinion. And here's a community letter from David Dewar of Iowa City. If teachers have sinister agenda, why give them guns? I'm alarmed to see that Iowa GOP lawmakers are advancing House Study Bill 675, which would permit school staff to carry firearms on school property. Anyone who's followed Iowa Republican legislators' efforts to decide what should and shouldn't be happening in our public schools must be feeling the effects of whiplash about now. Two years ago, former Senate President Jake Chapman, Republican from Adel, attacked teachers holding a novel in front of TV cameras and saying there's, quote, pornography in our schools, unquote. He described a, quote, sinister agenda occurring right before our eyes, unquote, going on to explain that, quote, Some teachers are disguising sexually obscene material as desired subject matter and profess it has artistic and literary value, unquote. Now Republican lawmakers are ready to put loaded guns in the hands of the teachers behind that so-called, quote, sinister agenda, unquote. During a committee hearing to discuss the bill, Representative Schuyler Wheeler, Republican from Orange City, said, quote, 
The scariest place to be in America, I believe, is in a place with gun-free zone signs posted all over the place, unquote. By that logic, one of the safest places to be in America would have been the Kansas City Chiefs Super Bowl victory parade, since over 800 armed police officers were posted there. End of opinion. And here's an opinion from Elsie Granderson, a syndicated columnist. Don't compare Trump's record to Bidenomics. Let's talk about political theater for a moment. Last fall, a House subcommittee held a hearing to discuss the impact of one of President Joe Biden's key pieces of legislation, the Inflation Reduction Act. Predictably, Republicans hated it. They were particularly peeved about the clean energy tax incentives. Representative Glenn Grothman, Republican from Wisconsin, framed his criticism around a populist message. Some of these green cars, electric cars, can cost $100,000 a year. And so almost by definition, the really wealthy show-offs of our society are the people building them, he said, before asking a witness. You mean they give special credits to the rich guy who likes to show off with his $100,000 a year Chevy, but you don't get a credit if you're an average guy trying to buy a car for $35,000? One witness was Preston Brashers, a research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Brashers once bafflingly accused the Biden administration of plundering the American people, lamented the lack of affordability of green ticket items such as solar panels. We all get that many Americans were feeling pinched financially last year, but this brain trust wants us to believe the stress at the grocery checkout line was caused by one year of Biden's inflation policy? After Trump spent four years pillaging the economy to serve the rich? Corporate tax receipts under Trump fell to an almost 75-year low. The top 1% now has more wealth than the entire middle class. We can have a discussion about fiscal policy without pretending our problems are all Biden's fault and without vilifying Republicans. But there's no longer room for debate about Trump's ability to handle the economy. That's done. Before he ran for president, Trump led businesses into bankruptcy six times. He has been in legal trouble with the U.S. government again and again since the 1970s. Trump ballooned the deficit by $7.8 trillion, and $3.3 trillion of that was before COVID-19 necessitated vast stimulus programs. And now he owes so much money after losing a string of court cases that he is selling gold gym shoes at campaign stops to raise money for his legal fees. And yet for Trump, the show is not over. In some ways, it is just beginning, and the next act does not look good for him. Because as someone whose entire image has been based on wealth and power, he has to be suffering a significant blow to his already fragile ego, ego now that so many more Americans know for certain that he inflated his wealth by billions of dollars in order to swindle money from others. Trump screwed the federal deficit by roughly $23,500 per person. Just the 2017 tax cuts for corporations and wealthy Americans dug the nation $2 trillion deeper into debt. Trump has been exposed as having lied about his success. That's not an opinion. It's a finding proved in court despite Trump's efforts at obfuscating. Just in the past two months, he has lost court cases with price tags adding up to nearly $600 million. We can debate Biden's record versus Trump's, but pretending as if the former president should be given the keys to our economy is dangerous. End of opinion. You are listening to the Cedar Rapids Gazette on IRIS, the Iowa radio reading service information service for the blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Erica Dubenbars. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at 515-243-6833. And now we'll turn to today's obituaries. 
Robert J. Bob Frimmel of Newhall. Robert J. Bob Frimmel, 87, passed away on Thursday, February 22, 2024, at Mercy Medical Center in Cedar Rapids. Massive Christian burial will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27, 2024, at St. Paul Catholic Church in Newhall, with Reverend Jacob Dunn as celebrant. Interment with graveside military rites will be held at St. John Cemetery in Newhall. Visitation will be from 4 to 7.30 p.m. on Monday, also at the church. A memorial fund has been established. Bob was born June 7, 1936, in rural Norway, the son of Cecil and Luella Stallman Frimmel. He graduated from Blairstown High School with with the class of 1955. He served his country in the United States Army in Korea. Bob was united in marriage to Marlis Werning on May 31, 1975, at St. John Lutheran Church in Newhall. Bob was a lifelong farmer and raised cattle, hogs, and sheep, as well as being a grower for Pioneer Seed Corn. He also worked at Country Floors and Interiors and the Newhall Feed Store for a number of years. Bob loved the farm life and served on the board of the Benton County Fair for decades. He held memberships in 4-H as a member in his youth and later as a 4-H leader and extension member, the Benton County Cattlemen's Association and the Pork Producers. He was also a proud member of the John Ward McRanahan Post number 167 in Newhall. Bob was known for his friendly demeanor and wonderful sense of humor. His greatest joy was following his grandchildren's activities. He was very proud of them all. Bob is survived by his wife of 48 years, Marlis, children Linda Tim of Searcy, Arkansas, Jennifer Meredad Akbar of Bentonville, Arkansas, Chris Julie Frimmel of New Hall, Matt Frimmel of Ava, Alabama, seven grandchildren, Patrick, Jenny Tim, Parker Williamson, Armin Akbar, Nadia Akbar, Cameron Akbar, Derek Frimmel, Ashley Evan Lucanato, three great-grandsons, Henry Tim, Nathan Tim, and Louis Lucanato, his sisters Jane Dietrich, Luann John Lutenhouse, Marcia Don Bonham, Sandy Bob Mance, brothers Richard Frimmel and David Frimmel, and many nieces and nephews. He was preceded in death by his parents, sisters, Margaret Stumpf and Mary Disterhoft, and brothers William Bill Frimmel and John Frimmel. Online condolences can be left at www.phillipsfuneralhomes.com. Milton Milt Eugene Gade of Cedar Rapids. Milton Milt Eugene Gade of Cedar Rapids died on February 18, 2024, at Northbrook Care Center. He was born on March 26, 1941. Two children were born to Milt and his first wife. In 1985, he married Mary Alberts. Together, they enjoyed many good times with family and friends. Milt worked in maintenance at General Mills for many years. Upon his retirement, the couple moved to Colorado, fulfilling a lifelong dream of Mary's. Their new home featured a beautiful view and ever-changing view of of Pikes Peak. Milt will be remembered as a devoted husband, beloved grandfather, and dedicated caregiver to Mary. Survivors include his stepchildren, Jim, Julie, Carly, Alberts, David Christy Alberts, and Lori Larry Fields and their children. Milt considered his grandchildren and later great-grandchildren as his own. He was a gentle and loving grandpa to grandchildren Nate Courtney Alberts, Megan Jake Wolford, Kate Scott Williams, and Cameron Fields. 
great-grandchildren Addie and Sawyer Alberts, Jane and Emily Wolford, Lydia, Emmett, and Jack Williams were welcomed with joy and loved greatly. Milt's remains were cremated at his request, and a family celebration of life will be held at a later date. To express condolences, please visit www.iowacremation.com under obituaries. Marilyn Mitz J. Svetska, Garnavillo. Marilyn Mitz J. Svetska, 76, of Garnavillo, Iowa, passed away Tuesday, February 20, 2024, at Gutenberg Care Center with her family by her side. Visitation will be held from 4 to 7 p.m. on Monday, February 26, 2024, at Morris Funeral Home in Garnavillo. Visitation will continue at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Garnavillo from 9.30 to 10.30 a.m. Funeral services will be held at 10.30 a.m. on Tuesday, February 27, 2024, at St. Peter Lutheran Church in Garnavillo, with burial in Garnavillo City Cemetery. Mitz was born on April 20, 1947, at the family home in Gutenberg, Iowa, the daughter of Laverle and Ilo Noring Roddenberg. She was the second child of six children, Carolyn, Janet, Bill, Robert, and Brian. She was united in marriage to Bryce Neverman on November 18, 1967. One daughter, Lori, was born to this union. They later divorced. She married Alvin Svestka on January 23, 1988. Mitz had many occupations throughout her life. Notable were her years working for Pattison Sand, Land's End, and being a slot attendant at the Casino Queen in McGregor. She was very proud of the fact that she worked up until the age of 74. Mitz was an avid quilter and cross-stitcher. She quilted a baby quilt for each baby that was born into the family. She also enjoyed a little gambling, with the buffalo slots being her favorite. Cards were another pastime that she enjoyed. Mitz was fond of hosting the family Thanksgiving every year, with around 50 family members and friends attending. Mitz had a big heart and loved her family. She would do anything for them. If you stopped at her house, there was always a cold beer waiting. She is survived by her daughter, Lori Creary, Mark Herman, grandchildren, Nicholas Ramey Creary, Libby Josh Knoll, great-grandchildren, Quentin and Emerson, siblings, Carolyn, Matt Esser, MacArthur, Janet Christensen, Bill, Bev, Rodenberg, Vicki Rodenberg, and Brian, Vicki, Rodenberg, and many nieces and nephews and friends. She was preceded in death by her parents, husbands Bryce and Alvin, brother Robert Rodenberg, and brother-in-law Stephen Christensen. The family would like to thank everyone at St. Croix Hospice, Guttenberg Care Center, and Guttenberg Municipal Hospital for the wonderful care she was given in her last months. Morris Funeral Home in Garnavillo is assisting the family, and information is available at www.morrisfuneralhomes.com. Memorials may be sent to Morris Funeral Home in care of the deceased, 207 South 1st Street, Guttenberg, Iowa, 52052. Sharon K. Sedlicek of Cedar Rapids. Sharon K. Sedlicek, 82, of Cedar Rapids, passed away February 22, 2024. Visitation, 4 to 6 p.m., Tuesday, February 27, 2024, at Cedar Memorial Park Funeral Home, and 9 to 10 a.m., Wednesday, February 28, 2024, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Massive Christian Burial, 10 a.m., Wednesday, February 28, 2024, at St. Patrick Catholic Church in Cedar Rapids. Interment, 
St. Patrick's Cemetery, Fairfax, Iowa. Sharon was born to Ruth and Ed on May 27, 1941, in Moline, Illinois. After graduation from Jefferson High School, she married her high school sweetheart, John Sedlicek, on June 20, 1959, at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Fairfax, Iowa. They were married almost 60 years when he preceded her in death on March 4, 2019. She loved being a wife, mother, grandmother, and great-grandmother. She enjoyed babysitting for all of them. They were the joy of her life. Most of her life, she was a homemaker, but also worked part-time as a cashier at Osco Drug and retiring at Drugtown. She was a member of St. Patrick's Church and Mercy Auxiliary. Sharon was noted for being a card sender to let everyone know she was always thinking about them because she couldn't always be there. She is survived by two daughters, Lori of Utah and Debbie of Tiffin, four grandchildren, Jacob, Jenny of Fairfax, Kelsey of Cedar Rapids, Elijah Kelly of New Jersey, and Jonah of New York, five great-grandchildren, Mason, Cole, and Aubrey of Fairfax, Leah of New Jersey, and Kingston of Cedar Rapids. Also surviving are her sister, Deanna of Marion, and her brother, Gary, Debbie of Cedar Rapids, and many nieces and nephews. Besides her husband, she was also preceded in death by her parents, parents-in-law, Wesley and Helen, brother-in-law, Lyle, and her beloved feline, Boots. Memorials may be directed to the family of Sharon Sedlicek. Online condolences are welcome at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Kathy Haas of Cedar Rapids Kathy Haas, 78, of Cedar Rapids, Iowa, passed away Thursday, February 22, 2024, at Heritage Specialty Care, Cedar Rapids. Funeral service, 11 a.m., Monday, February 26, 2024, at Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids, with visitation to begin one hour prior. Burial, Linwood Cemetery, Cedar Rapids. Kathy was born February 26, 1945, in Cedar Rapids, the daughter of Kenneth and Thelma Hayes Cahill. She was raised in Montana, where she graduated from high school in Stevensville. On July 4, 1962, Kathy was united in marriage to Gary Haas in Bozeman, Montana, and they returned to Cedar Rapids. She worked at Citywide Cleaners and Bishops. She loved to crochet, making blankets for every grandchild. Kathy was an exceptional baker that specialized in chocolate chip cookies and pumpkin bars. She enjoyed westerns and shopping with her mother. Kathy loved the time she spent with her grand and great-grandchildren. She will be missed dearly. Survivors include her children, Tom Haas, Deanna Randy Richardson, William Haas, and Jimmy Haas. Grandchildren, Megan, Melanie, Zeke, David, Lucinda, Crystal, Shoidi, Joshua, Tabitha, Ariana, Aiden, Dominique, Damien, Daisha, and Dante. Nineteen great-grandchildren, one great-great-grandchild on the way, and siblings, Benny Minka, Leonard Minka, and Linda Hoyle. Kathy was preceded in death by her parents, husband, Gary Haas, brother, Kenneth Minka, daughters-in-law, Tammy and Tasha, and son-in-law, Randy. Memorials may be directed to the family. Please share a memory of Kathy at www.murdochfuneralhome.com under obituaries. Other Notices Anamosa Janet Stickle, 94, died Friday, February 23, 2024. Goach Funeral Home, Anamosa Cedar Rapids 
Reverend William B. Harish died Thursday, February 22, 2024. Murdoch Linwood Funeral Home and Cremation Service, Cedar Rapids. Dyersville. Leon J. Sonny Mullis, 85, died Wednesday, February 21, 2024. Kramer Funeral Home. Jessup. Jeanette Marie Kester, 92, died Wednesday, February 21, 2024. White Funeral Home. Vinton. Ronald Rouchard, 85, died Friday, February 23, 2024. Funeral services are pending at Phillips Funeral Home in Vinton. Wayland. Norma J. Young, 90, died February 21, 2024. Jameson Schmidt's Funeral Home. End of obituaries. And now we'll turn to sports. All of the above. Number six Cyclones will continue to lean on Jones's posse to poise today against West Virginia. He's versatile, he's disciplined, and oh, he can shoot it. All of the above aptly describe Iowa State senior guard Curtis Jones, but his off-the-bench production pales in comparison to his most valuable attribute. It's just the poise that he has, said Cyclones men's basketball coach T.J. Otzelberger, whose sixth-ranked team, 26-9-4 Big 12, faces West Virginia, 9-17-4-9, at 1 p.m. today, ESPN2, in Hilton Coliseum. He's a veteran out there. He moves the basketball. He values the basketball. He's a great assist to turnover guy. He makes our offense flow, and defensively, he's continued to improve immensely. He's taking on challenging matchups and doing a great job with those, so he's just a very complete basketball player. Jones serves as a Swiss Army knife of sorts for ISU, which saw a four-game win streak snapped Monday with an eight-point loss at number 2 Houston. He ranks fourth on the team in scoring, 10.2 points per game, third in assists, 2.2, and second in steals, 1.7. Jones also is the only Cyclone to reach double figures in scoring in each of the past nine games, so after a wobbly start to the season, he's now defined by both poise and consistency. I'd say I've always had poise, but sometimes it takes me a bit to get adjusted to things at every level, Jones said. When I went to junior college, it took me a while to get adjusted, and once I did, I was poised. Same thing at Buffalo, and now I think you can see it here. It also shows up at the free throw line, where Jones is a team-best 21 of 24, 87.5% in Big 12 play. Foul shooting has been a concern for the Cyclones, who were outscored at the line in three of their four conference losses. Jones, Milan, Momsilovic, and Trey King each shoot 80% or better from the line for ISU, which came back repeatedly Monday against the Cougars, despite facing a 14-point shortfall at the free throw line. We showed that we can compete on a really good team's court and be in the game, I guess, Otzelberger said. That's not really what we're in this for at this point in the year. We're in this to come out and do the job we need to do to be successful. We didn't get it done. Credit to them. But moving on, we can fight with anybody. But we need to be able to fight with anybody, but also execute and do the things we need to do down the stretch to find a way to win. Enter the Mountaineers, who snapped a four-game skid by beating UCF 77-67 at home Tuesday. West Virginia also won at Hilton Coliseum last season. So Otzelberger is ensuring his team won't look past Saturday's challenge, despite the Mountaineers' season-long struggles. 
They beat us twice last season, Otzelberger said. They beat us at Hilton. That sticks with you. You've got to be at your best every single night in this league. Jones has certainly been at his best in Big 12 play for the Cyclones, who are one game behind Houston in the conference standings, and will need to remain poised and productive as his team seeks to contend for its first regular season title since 2001. Gotta get back in that win column against West Virginia, Jones said. They might not have the best record in the league, but we're still looking at it like it's a big game. End of story. Hawkeyes go 15 for 15 in Nationals qualifying. Rose fourth at 125 after Taylor's move to 116. It is hard to get much better than what Iowa women's wrestling did Friday. The Hawkeyes took 15 wrestlers to the NCWWC regionals on Friday at Simpson College's Cowles Fieldhouse, and all 15 qualified for the national championships. Iowa, as one of nine teams at the regional, was responsible for a whopping 37.5% of the national championship qualifiers from the region. The only thing holding the Hawkeyes back from qualifying more athletes was the 15 wrestler limit at regionals. Six Hawkeyes, Emily Gonzalez, Ava Bayless, Brianna Gonzalez, Reese Laramendi, Marilyn Deed, and Kylie Welker finished first in Friday's regionals. Sterling Diaz, Felicity Taylor, Lily Luft, Bella Mir, and J.C. Fowler had second-place finishes. Emily Frost and Haley Ward finished third at 130 and 170 pounds, respectively. Ella Schmidt and freshman Ava Rose finished fourth at 143 and 125 pounds. The 15-for-15 feat is especially impressive, considering Iowa's recent change in the lineup. Taylor, after wrestling up at 123 pounds throughout the 2023-2024 season, made the move to 116 pounds before the NCWWC regionals. The Spillville native switched weights, despite certainly having no shortage of success at 123 pounds. She lost only once, and that was to top-ranked Amani Jones of North Central. Wrestling at 116 pounds, where NWCA ranks her fourth nationally, theoretically gives Taylor a better chance at winning a national title. Any lingering concern about Iowa's strength at 123 pounds without Taylor shrunk considerably as Rose stepped into the lineup at 123 and finished fourth during Friday's regional. Rose was in an 8-0 hole in the quarterfinals against William Jewell College's Alexandra Waitsman. She was dangerously close to suffering a technical fall, a loss that would make qualifying for nationals extremely difficult, before making a spirited comeback and winning via decision, 11-8. Having a qualifier in every weight class positions Iowa nicely for what will likely be a competitive field in the national championships, which includes North Central College and King University. The match earlier this season between Iowa and North Central ended in a narrow 21-20 win for the Hawkeyes. The NCWWC postseason, along with providing the chance to win individual national titles, could have Olympic implications for several Hawkeyes. Taking first place at NCWWC Nationals, which will take place on March 8th through 9th at the Alliant Energy Powerhouse in Cedar Rapids, is one of the last ways to qualify for the U.S. Olympic team trials. So far, the only Hawkeyes to secure spots at the Olympic trials are Welker, Deed, and Rose Cassiope. After NCWWC Nationals, the only other opportunity will be the 2024 Last Chance Olympic Trials Qualifier, which can be especially competitive. End of story. Iowa seeks third straight quad one win in eight-day span. 
February has been a valentine of a month for the Iowa men's basketball program the last several years, and the past week has been an extension of that. The Hawkeyes are 34-14 in February since 2018. The two most recent wins were a box of chocolates and a dozen roses, 88-86 in overtime over Wisconsin at home last Saturday, and 78-71 at Michigan State on Tuesday. A win today would be a heart-shaped pendant encrusted with diamonds. The Hawkeyes play number 12 Illinois in Champaign at 1.15 p.m. It's about as tough a challenge as the Big Ten offers right now. Illinois, 10-5, Big Ten 19-7 overall, is coming off a 90-89 loss at Penn State on Wednesday after squandering a 14-point lead, which will probably make the Illini all the hungrier. It isn't as if the Hawkeyes, 8-8, 16-11, lack motivation. They're still in the bracketology hinterland, but a third quad one win in eight days would pull them into the NCAA tournament discussion. Completing that hat trick figures to be difficult indeed. They're not only one of the best teams in our league, but one of the best teams in the country, Iowa coach Fran McCaffrey said Friday. It's a team with rebounding prowess, a great fondness for making three-pointers, experience, and size. Their starters range from 6'5 to 6'10. Their top three scorers are fifth-year players. Terrence Shannon is a 6'6 guard whose 22 points per game ranks sixth annually, nationally. Marcus Damask averages 15.5 points and is an excellent passer. He's a versatile guy, a 2,000-point scorer, McCaffrey said. He makes winning plays. He's made a difference on that team. Iowa freshman center Owen Freeman will be challenged by Coleman Hawkins, a fellow 6'10 player. Hawkins leads the Illini in block shots and steals and has made 43 three-pointers. As for the Hawkeyes, they're seeking to rise above .500 in the Big Ten for the first time this season. Getting to that, to that level didn't seem all that realistic a week ago this morning. It's a resilient group, McCaffrey said. End of story. Instant classic. Marion outlasts Makokita in four overtimes. Guys were cramping. Guys were fouling out. With whatever energy they had left, one team's guys would make a big shot or defensive play, then the other team's guys would counter with a big shot or defensive play. Marion and Makokita played a Class 3A substate semifinal boys basketball game Thursday night, and played and played and played. After two-plus hours and four overtimes, there was a final score. Finally. Marion, 97. Makokita, 95. I've never, ever been in a game like that in my life, said Marion center Kyler Whitman, one of the crampers. He was still able to power his way to a 33-point night, using his 6'6 body to overwhelm Makokita's much shorter defenders. All we know as a team is to just fight, Whitman said. We just fight to the end no matter what. No matter if we're down 20, up 20, it don't matter. We just fight, fight, fight. That's all I've got to say. The fateful fourth overtime went back and forth. It felt like two games. It really did, said Makokita's Ty Harden. I can't believe my career is over. Four years on the varsity. It's tough. Whitman was sixth-ranked Marion's primary guy offensive, offensively early. Harden was Makokita's. Marion went up 92-89, but Makokita's tie hints was fouled on a three-point attempt and made all three free throws to tie it yet again at 92 with one minute and one second left. Whitman put Marion up 94-92, but Makokita sophomore Parker Burmeister nailed a three to put the Cardinals ahead with 20 seconds left, 95-94. 
Marion again fed Whitman, and he drew a foul with 6.7 seconds to go. He made the first of two free throws, but missed the second. It appeared Makokita had the rebound, but Marion kept clawing for it, with Austin Goodrich eventually securing it and being fouled. He hit two free throws with 3.1 seconds left. I saw the kid on me was a little smaller, so I knew I had a good chance to get the rebound, Goodrich said. I just closed my eyes and said, go get the board, the free throws. I knew I had it. I was four for four going in, and I knew that, let's knock these down, and it's party time. End of story. That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Cedar Rapids Gazette. I'm your reader, Erica Dubenbars. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.